1: Hello, and welcome back to HackRack. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have back with me today the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac for another Keyword episode. This is our 22nd in this series. Hard to believe it's flown, but uh, these are really, um, I think, well-received and really fun to do. I learn a lot, uh, and Jillian, really appreciate all your work here. And so um, we're going to talk today about another two keywords: muscular dystrophies and trisomy 21. Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Before we start, I want to give a big shout out to all the dental anesthesiologists out there. It was really fun to meet a bunch of you at your annual meeting, and thanks for having me as a speaker. All right. So, Jillian, where do we want to start?
0: Yeah. So, this particular keywords come from the Advanced Test Outline. Whatever I have learned is that residents don't ever look at the ABA outline because it's like it's really long, a little bit overwhelming. But I spend a lot of time coming through it, um, and. The muscular dystrophies and the trisomy 21 is just in a long list of pediatric medical problems with anesthesia implications. So that would include like um, cystic fibrosis, developmental delay, childhood obesity, skeletal abnormalities, and there's a whole list of these. So we will slowly work our way through. I think there's about 10 or 12 of them, but the two I picked for today are muscular dystrophies and then trisomy 21. Um mostly because they're the easier questions to find probably. And I do know that in general, I very much avoid peds anesthesia because it is not my wheelhouse. It's not my forte. And I just want to say that I am by no means an expert in any of this. Like my whole... Thought behind the keywords was not to be an expert, but to help people know what's on the test and help guide them study for the test. So I just want to put that out there that I, I don't do pediatric anesthesia. I haven't done a pediatric patient in probably 15 years, but um, it's also fun to study and relearn some of these things.
1: Yeah, and I'm in the same boat. Certainly not an expert yeah. on pediatric anesthesia in any any stretch of the imagination. Um, And I will say, you know, we really appreciate people do go on uh, the show notes and comment when they realize either we made a mistake, which absolutely can happen, or there may be a mistake in some of these questions. These are not, you know, guaranteed to be foolproof questions. So sometimes there's a mistake there, Um, or just to uh, help with a better explanation for why something's right or why something's wrong. So please feel free. This really should be, you know, a crowdsourced um, where everyone's helping each other. Uh,
0: So starting with the muscular dystrophy, uh, there are three that the board really wants you to know about. It's Becker's muscular dystrophy, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and then myotonic dystrophy. And then the other really common question is the uh, the disorders that are associated with malignant hyperthermia. They're really rare. I don't think I've ever come across someone with King Denimborough syndrome or with mini core disease. But you, they really want you to know it. It's like a every year type of a question. Um so just starting with the dystrophies just a quick review uh muscular dystrophy it's a group of hereditary diseases characterized by painless degeneration and atrophy of skeletal muscle um there's usually symmetric skeletal muscle weakness and wasting there're x-linked um disorders. So they affect men typically more than women for that reason. Um, And they're both caused by the the Duchenne and Becker muscular dystrophy are both caused by a mutation on the X chromosome that prevents normal formation of dystrophin. And that's the key protein that stabilizes a muscle cell. So without that dystrophin, the muscle cells just really start degrading and for lack of a better word, they became very, they're like sad little muscle cells and they lice very quickly Um, Usually Becker's muscular dystrophy progresses at a slower rate than Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, um, but most patients have symptoms by adolescence in both of them. Uh, the key thing to know is that patients with both, and I'm going to abbreviate them as DMD and BMD, um, they both have may have life threatening perioperative complications related to triggering agents that can induce skeletal muscle breakdown. The biggest one is succinylcholine, and that can cause just profound hyperkalemia and rhabdomyolysis because it hits those muscle cells and they just break apart. Um, And you want to avoid these triggering agents. And also some of the volatile anesthetics can lead to muscle breakdown. It's not going to be as severe as with succinylcholine, but you can see it with any of the inhaled anesthetics. Um, So the interoperative management, obviously, is to avoid triggering agents uh, and take into account that musculoskeletal patients are at increased risk for cardiac conduction abnormalities. That's a big question that they like to ask. It's really common that these patients have cardiac issues also. Um, Aspiration, hypersensitivity to anesthetic agents, and then metabolic abnormalities, including hyper chalemia and hyperglycemia. So as to what's on the test, so this part is a little bummer. I like the website Open Anesthesia. There's a lot of keywords. It's kind of crowdsourced. You can read the keywords and the information. And they used to tell you how often those keywords were tested. Like they would said, this was tested in 2020 and 2019. And I never knew how they got that data or where it came from, but it's gone now. (laughs) So I can't tell you like how frequently this is tested. I can just go by... I look through lots of questions, and when you read thousands of questions, you start seeing similar ones over and over. So I try to do that. I try to pull questions and topics that I, I think the board really wants you guys to know. Uh, so we will start there. Um, so question one, which of the following conditions is a contraindication to the use of succinylcholine? choline? Oh. So A... Choices. Sorry. Yeah. A burns of 50% body surface area occurring 12 years ago. B is cirrhosis. C is myotonic dystrophy. D is a seizure disorder and E is a spinal cord transaction within the past six hours.
1: Yeah. I think a was 12 hours ago, not 12 years ago. Right. Right. Okay. Oh, did okay. I say years?
0: I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm really tired. I'm functioning. Yeah. No, no, like, no. I, no, like no worries. I think, life. but that is significant.
1: So, um,
0: that is until, very important. Yeah. Detect. It's
1: very important. <laughs> And as, as you said earlier, so myotonic dystrophy is one of those things you would definitely not use sucks for, um, could be, you know, definitely life threatening in terms of causing hyperkalemia. So the answer is going to be C. The reason it's not burns over 50% of the body surface area is because it was only 12 hours ago. So it takes 24 to 48 hours for the denervation, for the uh, proliferation of the, um, extrajunctional, uh, receptors that can lead to um, acetylcholine receptors that can lead to the hyperkalemia. And so they haven't had time yet if the burn was 12 hours ago. Cirrhosis doesn't cause that. Seizure disorder doesn't cause it. And then spinal cord transection, again, within the past six hours, hasn't had time yet. So key to know that burns over 50% of the body and spinal cord transection both would do it if it had been, you know, two or three days ago, but not at only six or 12 hours.
0: And you know what? In my preoperative, my preoperative, I I am... Post-call, I'm working on very little sleep, so if I make mistakes, please call me out. Um, in my reading up, in my little spiel ahead of time, I didn't cover myotonic dystrophy, myotonic dystrophy, and that is actually one I remember in studying that I saw questions, and it just never really stuck. But it's definitely being tested, and so I just want to go through myotonic dystrophy really quick. So that's a muscular disorder where you still have the progressive muscle weakness, like you would see in a Duchenne or a Becker muscular dystrophy. But the unique part is you get these prolonged contractions. So you can have the, like your... I wouldn't say it's a muscle spasm, but like your hand can claw down or your muscles can just really clamp down and you get that along with progressive weakness and they have a lot of the same issues interoperatively that you would see with the other muscular dystrophies like the cardiac issues aspiration sensitivity to drugs and metabolic abnormalities Um, it's one of those things that's really rare, and I did do a little bit of a deep dive on it. So the Myotonic Dystrophy Foundation actually has a really wonderful website and has a list of different documents, and one of them is practical suggestions for the anesthetic management of a myotonic dystrophy patient. So if you ever do have a patient that comes in, it's a great resource. It's really easy to look through. It has like a nice overview of different bullet points of what to think about. So um, I just wanted to point that out.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: All right. So question two, hyperkalemia is not a risk for patients receiving succinylcholine with which of the following? A, multiple sclerosis. B, myasthenia gravis. C, Guillain-Barre syndrome. D, Becker muscular dystrophy.
1: So here, hopefully what jumps out at you is that myasthenia gravis is the opposite, right? They're resistant right. to succinylcholine because they've lost their acetylcholine receptors. They've been attacked. in this autoimmune disorder and so they are resistant to succinylcholine and you can use it, but you need to use more. So right away, even if you didn't know any of the rest of it, you should say, oh yeah, hyperkalemia, definitely not a problem with myasthenia gravis. So that's the answer. Multiple sclerosis um, is uh, does have that risk and Guillain-Barre does, as does Becker and Muscular Dystrophy. So all of those end up in denervation of some kind exactly. or mus- muscle wasting, which ends right. up with more of those extrajunctional receptors. Uh,
0: so this next question is... I alluded to it earlier, but it's the patients that are susceptible for malignant hyperthermia. And I just want to point that out now, because this is like almost guaranteed that you're going to see this. I would even put it maybe even fair game on the basic, but this is something that you absolutely have to know. So a patient with which of the following disorders is at increased risk of malignant hyperthermia susceptibility compared to the general population? A. king Denborough syndrome, B, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, C. Hyperkalemic periodic paralysis, D. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome.
1: Yeah, and I think this is a tricky one because, for example, you might see hyperkalemic periodic paralysis and think, oh, that that sounds you know, like a, a problem, although maybe more with, with uh, potassium. But I think this is just like you said, Jillian, one of those things you just have to know, right? There's no way to reason this out. And, you know, what I, I kind of remember is that there are those, I think there's very few actually, there there used to be this thought that there were a lot. And right. now we kind of know that some of those things people thought used to be associated with malignant hypothermia are not, but King-Denbro syndrome is one that is. And so that's the answer here. And the other ones I think are those core, like uh, central core disease. Central core and,
0: disease and multi-mini core disease. So yeah. those are the three. Yeah. I think it used they used to lump all of the disorders that could cause profound hyperkalemia into the MH susceptible because it looks very similar right you're going to have rhabdomyolysis and hyperkalemia like uh it's going to look very similar in the beginning but what we do realize now is that they are their own things and unique entities and the hyperkalemia issues is not really not hyperthermia but definitely need to know you have to know this um i really recommend anki i don't know if you guys have heard of anki it's like a digital flashcards. And so when you have things that you just have to rote memorize that you can't intuit or think through, make an Anki flashcard. And the nice thing about them is they'll repeat the ones you miss more often, right? So it's like spaced repetition, but they also will bring up the ones that you're missing. And I've had residents who have kind of struggled with um, this type of thing, like just the rote memorization and the Anki has really helped them. So
1: Yeah. People, I, I've never used it myself because it, it didn't exist back when I was studying, but I think our, our students in residents these days really like it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I kind of did like the OG style, you know, the stack of note cards, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. through them. and then once you really felt like you knew something, you got rid of the, you know, the stack got smaller right. and smaller, but, uh, it's, yeah. it's like that, but you know, it's digital and more interactive and more fun.
1: Yeah. That was Anki 1.0. You weren't, yeah. We're exactly. Not <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, I just probably aged myself there, but that's okay. (laughs) All right. The next question. So an 18-year-old male with Duchenne muscular dystrophy presents for gastric tube placement. Which of the following is most likely to be found in his preoperative evaluation? A, an FEV1 40% and an FVC 90% of predicted value on PFTs. B, dilated cardiomyopathy with valvular regurgitation. C, elevated creatinine. And D, respiratory alkalosis.
1: Yeah. So, um, as you said, kind of up top, these patients can have a dilated cardiomyopathy, and therefore, anytime you have a dilated cardiomyopathy, you can end up with valve valve regurgitation. So, B is the right answer here. I think what they're getting at with A is to try to make you think they're giving you uh, numbers that are consistent with a restrictive respiratory uh, pathology, which they can develop, but this is not what you would see. You would de- you would see a low FEV one, but you'd also see a low FVC. Um, and so they're giving you a high FVC and therefore, uh, or normal to high. And so that is um, not consistent with restrictive respiratory defect. So that is why A is wrong. And then uh, C and D are, are not things that they necessarily see.
0: And again, this is a really common question. I remember studying this, like I actually remember this from 15 years ago, eight well, longer than that, studying for my exam. Um, they really want you to know about the cardiac muscle because it is muscle. It's also affected. So it's like Dr. Wilpa said, the dilated cardiomyopathy with valve regurgitation, but also conduction defects, arrhythmias, um, and right ventricular dysfunction. And I, also, think it's interesting that cardiac dysfunction does not correlate with a degree of muscle weakness. So, someone may not have that much skeletal muscle weakness, but may have a really bad cardiac deficit. So, that's also important preoperatively to know.
1: And actually, I'm sorry, I want to go back. I said that wrong. Patients with a restrictive defect would have a high FEV1 and a low um, FVC. So, this is actually they've reversed it uh, because the, I think of those patients as having like a a a they're like a tightly coiled spring right they can't get much in but then they can they can kind of get it out very quickly but then that's all they can get out so they have a low total volume but they can get that first second out really quickly because they're no there's no reason it doesn't they don't have a, re, a restriction to flow coming out or an obstruction to flow coming out they just have a restriction that they can't get much in so fev1 would be normal or even high fvc would be low so it's the reverse of what they've given there okay
0: uh, and then moving on to the next question, a five-year-old male with Duchenne muscular dystrophy is most likely to have which of the following complications after exposure to an anesthetic that includes sevoflurane? So A, cardiac failure, B, respiratory insufficiency, C, rhabdomyolysis, and hyperklemia, D, malignant hyperthermia.
1: So this is that tricky piece where you, know, you might think, oh, all those things are linked to malignant hyperthermia. They're not. But you can see the rhabdomyolysis and the hyperkalemia, which is why they used to be thought to be linked with malignant hyperthermia. But as you said earlier, Jillian, it's not a true malignant hyperthermia. So C is the answer there.
0: And you can you can see, and it is very common in Duchenne muscular dystrophy to have cardiac failure and respiratory insufficiency. But that usually comes later in life, usually not at age five. Um, and then... Uh, see before, and like we talked about, can cause the rhabdomyolysis, and the, it's not just succinylcholine. So the question was most likely, and those are really tricky because in a way A, B, and C could all be correct in the right patient, but they're asking about like the most likely, and that is the most likely thing in a five-year-old. Okay. This question is kind of tricky. That's why I liked it. (laughs) It's a 16-year-old female. So a girl is coming in for an appendectomy. Her younger brother has been diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. She has a normal physical exam and denies a history of weakness. She is at risk for which of the following perioperative events? A, abnormal response to non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. B, respiratory insufficiency. C, cardiac arrest aspiration. And I will just say that I did not know this. I got this wrong. <laughs> the only reason I know it is because I read the answers.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think this is very tricky. Um, and, the, you know, it is important that it's a female. And again, she may be a carrier of the muscular dystrophy gene. She doesn't, isn't manifesting it, obviously, because she is a female. So she's got two X chromosomes. Um, but being a carrier of that may put her at risk for some of the complications Um, of the disease. Now, which ones, again, I would, like you, I would not be sure. I think it's probably um, cardiac arrest in that uh, she may have some amount of susceptibility to the seboflurane or whatever agents um, they're using. I don't know if they told us, I don't think they told us specifically what agents, but um, just perioperatively, she may be susceptible to the agents in a way that he was but um, you know, again, she's probably not weak since she doesn't have the full-blown disease. So I think respiratory insufficiency is probably a little less likely as it would be aspiration. Um, and then an abnormal response to non-depolarizing muscle relaxants, I think that's tough because it, that does seem a little tempting too i probably decide between that and the cardiac arrest. And again, I, I can't tell you I know the answer for sure without... I didn't know. It
0: up but, but they were, and I'll, I'll read the explanation. But I thought it was really interesting because it's actually something I not have not thought about but probably should have. Is they're saying that because she has a first-degree relative with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, she's possibly a carrier. So probably like 50-50 that she's a carrier. Um, and if she is a carrier, she may have underlining cardiomyopathy. So just like the males whose cardiac deficit's can be worse than their weakness, you could see someone who's a carrier not have any weakness, but still have an underlying cardiomyopathy significant enough to cause intraoperative cardiac failure. And then she's also at risk for rhabdo and hyperclemia, which they didn't give us. That would have been the easy response, right? They gave us the much harder one. Um, but I, I, I like this question because I had to think about DMD and like not a, a boy and like a, a woman being a carrier. It's not something you think about frequently, at least for me. Okay. The next question, seven. Each of the following conditions causes resistance to non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockade except, so A is chronic severe infections, B is major burns, C is myotonia congenita, D is prolonged immobilization, and E is upper motor neuron injury. So I put this question in here because I don't think that I realize that myotonia myotonia congenita is actually not myotonia dystrophy. They're actually two distinct things. And so I wanted to make sure when we're going through this, that we made a point of that, that this is not a dystrophy.
1: Yeah. So that's tricky. And then the key thing I think to this question is realizing that what makes someone resistant to non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers is having extra junctional receptors, right? So if you have more acetylcholine receptors, you're going to be resistant to non-depolarizing blockers, just like the reverse. If you have fewer, like in myasthenia gravis, you have fewer receptors, then you are resistant to sucks. And the opposite is true here. If you have more receptors, you're resistant to non-depolarizers. So we want to look at those same things we talked about that would make you susceptible to hyperkalemia from sucks. So chronic severe infections, that's actually interesting. Maybe does it though. I think that's less commonly thought about. Major burns, definitely. Prolonged immobilization, definitely. Upper motor neuron injury, definitely. So we can get rid of B, D, and E, um, and then we're left with A and C. Chronic severe infections, depending on what it does and if it causes any kind of denervation, uh, puts you in the ICU immobile for a long time, those kind of things could lead to it. So A, probably we can get rid of, and that leads to myotonia congenita, which again, I wouldn't know much about that, but... Uh, You can probably narrow yourself down to that answer. And then as you said, Jillian, it turns out that that actually is different than uh, the muscular dystrophies.
0: Yeah. So myotonia congenita is distinguished from myotonia dystrophy in that you get the, the muscle contractions, but you don't have all the other things. So it's like it's its own unique thing. But I think, like I said, it's important to know the difference because they're not interchangeable.
1: All right. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks. This is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause or reschedule. Head to Factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at Factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. All right, and we're back with another question with Jillian Isaac.
0: Question eight. A five-year-old boy with myotonic dystrophy type 1 is scheduled for laparoscopic G2 placement. Which of the following medications is most likely to cause myotonic contraction? Lidocaine, desplorane, rocuronium, sexylcholine.
1: Yeah, so I think this is a little tricky in terms of knowing exactly what they're getting at with myotonic contraction. Um, But I think if you had to think about um, anything here, that's going to cause contraction, it would be succinylcholine, right? That causes contractions. Um, Rocuronium, we know, does not. And DES and lidocaine, you know, do not. So I think that probably I'd go with succinylcholine, though. I I have to admit when they say myotonic contraction, I don't know if they mean something specific to myotonic dystrophy or if they just mean muscle contraction.
0: Yeah, I think it's the myotonic dystrophy. that, That what's unique about myotonic dystrophy versus like a DMD or a BMD is that it's not just, it's the muscle weakness and myotonia. So they have these moments like, so say you go to like turn your doorknob, your hand gets stuck and it can't relax. Mm. Uh, So that's really the difference. Whereas the myotonia congenita, it's the same thing. You go to like open the door and your hand can't relax, but you don't have all the other things that you see with dystrophy. So that's the difference between the two.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
0: So you're right. The answer was um, succinylcholine. And then I put this in because I just I had never heard this before, and I just thought it was interesting. So it's a 12-year-old with myotonia congenita, so not the dystrophy, undergoing a reduction and fixation of a fracture, and he develops a sustained muscle contraction intraoperatively. Which of the following interventions will relieve myotonic contractions? So A, neuromuscular blockade with rocuronium. B, peripheral nerve blockade with lidocaine. C, decrease in intracellular calcium with dantrolene. Or D, sodium channel blockade with procannamide.
1: Yeah, I think this is very tricky. You know, I think... What is happening here is contraction at the level of the muscle, not the nerve. So, you know, blocking with rock or lidocaine is not going to help because these are affecting the nerve. Um, Decreasing intracellular calcium with dantrolene is interesting uh, and sodium channel blockade with percanamide. Also, I can imagine a a mechanism where that's going to kind of balance out the membrane potential. I'd probably have to decide between those, though. I wouldn't know the answer off the top of my head.
0: Yeah. And like I said, I, I did look at that, the myotonia dystrophy website, um, and one of the things that they talk about are, are the triggers of the actual myotonia, and a lot of drugs can do it, but also like being cold. So there are things that you can do to just try to prevent it, and that's always what you want to do is try to prevent the myotonia. But if you did get it, in theory, you could get prokanamide. Have I ever seen it? No. Have I ever done this? No. But I, It was like a very interesting It's more like a thoughtful question, right?
1: Like just knowing
0: how these drugs work, on what level. All right. So, this is the last question in the dystrophy. Uh, category. So it's an 18-year-old with myotonic dystrophy coming in for an elective orthopedic procedure. He has minimal symptoms of his disease, but his family members who have developed severe systemic symptoms related to this diagnosis. Preoperative counseling regarding anesthetic risk for this patient should include which of the following? A, no cardiac evaluation is necessary at this time. B, postoperative ventilation may be required. C, responses to sedative medications will be normal. And D, the risk for malignant hyperthermia is increased.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this is a patient with some weakness, um, not a lot, but family members with more severe. So he's definitely got the disease and the, you know, maybe there may be some subclinical um, weakness that's going to be uncovered. So I think certainly post-op ventilation may be required. These patients can be difficult to extubate. I think that's probably the most likely. No cardiac evaluation is necessary. No, I think these patients need a cardiac evaluation. Everyone
0: with dystrophy does. Yep.
1: Yep. The risk for malignant hypothermia hyperthermia is increased. We know that's not true. We already talked about that. Response to sedative medications will be normal. I think they're more sensitive, right? Yeah. So that's They are right. more
0: sensitive, yeah. yeah. So and I will just say... B. Oh, sorry.
1: No, no, that leaves B as the correct answer. Yeah.
0: Uh, I will say that these stems are not infrequent in the oral boards also, because there are just so many things you can talk about in terms of drugs, like post-op complications, interoperative complications, hyperkalemia, cardiac issues, like pre-evaluation. Um, so just keep that in mind. I know this is more for written board review, but these type of stems really common. I had a, well, am I allowed to say, I don't think I'm allowed to say, I can't, sorry. what <laughs> <laughs> was on my oral board. I think, yeah, but uh I just think there's a lot you can draw from them. Yeah. Okay. So moving from dystrophy to trisomy 21. Uh, we all know trisomy 21. Uh, but the one, the things to really focus on in terms of like anesthesia is so patients with Down syndrome may have an airway complicated by both macroglossia, tonsillar and adenoidal hypertrophy, micronathia, and a short neck. They may have obstructive sleep apnea and then really. Lacks cervical ligaments, as well as other cervical abnormalities, like um, it says odontoid, I guess, leading to cervical instability. So they can have atlanto-occipital instability. Uh, children and adults may need smaller size tracheas because they, smaller size endotracheal tubes because they tend to have smaller tracheas. And about half of these patients have congenital heart disease, half of which are cushion defects. So um, AV canal, but you can also see ASD, v- VSD, tetralogy, uh, PDAs, um, those people who do have left to right shunts uh, will develop pulmonary hypertension before patients without Down syndrome. So they're at increased risk for those uh, left to right shunts and pulmonary hypertension. And then it's really common to see developmental delay and uh, hypotonia. So just to go through, like these are really, really, I even remember studying this for mine, right? Like these are really common points that they want you to know, especially the airway, the macroglossia, the micronathia, short neck, OSA, cervical instability, cardiac, the congenital heart disease, pulmonary, OSA, and then neuromuscular development delay, hypotonia. So again, there's so many questions that can come from um, trisomy 21. And I like this first question. It is really hard, but it starts off with a five-year-old girl with trisomy 21 coming in for an abdominal procedure. So in my head, immediately, I just start thinking of everything trisomy 21. And then it pivots. to the patient has narrow-angle glaucoma. Which of these medications can be safely used for this patient? So it has nothing to do with like the five-year-old or the trisomy 21. They really want you to know what drug um, you should not give in narrow-angle glaucoma. So the answer choices are A, Glycopyrrolate, B, atropine, C, scopalamine, and D, pilocarpine.
1: Yeah, and I think a really important test-taking tip here, right, is read the whole question because yeah. if you what you said, Jillian, if you had read the first sentence and then you you take a pause and you start you spend five minutes, you, you know, going God. through all this stuff in your head about what could they be asking, right? Then and and you realize 8, 8. actually you don't even need to right. So you you want you don't want to waste time without knowing what they're actually asking. And sometimes I find this on my Mocha question, Sometimes they'll give you this whole chart of labs and <laughs> vitals, and then you don't need any of that to answer no, the question, yeah. right? So you want to be very careful not to waste Uh, your time. I don't
0: know if this is good advice or not, but this is something that I do on standardized tests is I read the punchline, so to speak, first. So if it's like, what medication can be used safely when I'm reading the stem, I know what to look for. So you can, it just saves me some time.
1: Right. So what you want to know here, and this, by the way, could apply to any person with glaucoma. It does not have to be a kid or a person with trisomy 21. So what you want to know here is that um, pilocarpine is actually a treatment for narrow-angle glaucoma um, because it is a uh, not an anticholinergic but a cholinergic. And so that is the answer because that will actually help. Scopolamine is an anticholinergic. Atropine, obviously, is the prototypical anticholinergic, and glycopyrrolate is an anticholinergic. So all of these will cause it to be worse. Anticholinergics cause uh, glaucoma to be worse. Cholinergics, like pilocarpine, will treat it. So that's the answer here.
0: Uh, so this next question, I will say that I got it from a pediatric anesthesia board review, so it is a very tough question. I just think it's more for the like the thought behind it, and I have seen women coming into l and d who have had. Fontan repair. So, in that regard, I have seen this before. So, this is a 21 year old woman with a history of trisomy 21 and unbalanced atrioventricular septal defect status post a non fenestrated fontan completion, is undergoing general anesthesia for a cardiac MRI. The patients having dyspnea on exertion, labs are within normal limits, hematocrit 35%. Prior to induction of anesthesia using propofol, fentanyl, and rocuronium, what would be the most appropriate action? So A, control potential reflex tachycardia with esmolol. B, start a dopamine infusion. C, reduce FiO2 to prevent pulmonary overcirculation. D, give red blood cells to improve oxygen-carrying capacity.
1: Yeah, so um, they're telling you that hematocrit is 35, so oxygen, you know, hematocrit is not the problem here. Um, so you can get rid of D, um, and you certainly aren't looking at a pulmonary overcirculation problem. So uh, you know I think you can get rid of C. Um, what what you're looking at is a patient who has a Fontan, who has um, on exertion, and may have, and is trisomy 21, so is at risk for you know heart failure in general. So I think having um, a an inotrope on board to help move things forward is probably a good idea. Um, I'd probably go with the dopamine infusion.
0: Right. Yeah. So Fontan patients, they require intravascular volume. It's a passive return of uh, venous systemic flow directly to the pulmonary circulation. So it's more of a thought. You're you're probably not going to see this on like advanced. It's a little bit more advanced than that, but I thought it was just interesting way to think through a Fontan repair. Um, So the next one, this is actually a really common question. Down syndrome, not down syndrome, but it, it is the stem. As a two year old boy with trisomy 21 is undergoing repair of a transitional AV canal defect. Shortly after inhalational induction with sevoflurane, his heart rate falls from 110 to 70 beats per minute. His blood pressure is now 70 over 55, and his O2 sat is 100%. What is the most appropriate management? So, A, no treatment indicated. B, phenylephrine, one microgram per kilogram IV. C, glycopyrrolate, 10 micrograms per kilogram IV. And D, reduced the inspired oxygen fraction from 100% to 21%.
1: So I think, you know, again, I don't do kids, uh, but I'm thinking that I remember that kids don't do well with bradycardia, right? Right. So probably the problem Right,
0: right, yeah. Yeah. You you could basically strip down this question, like take away the trisomy 21, take away the AV canal defect. This is basically a kid that's brady on induction. What do you do?
1: Right, so bradycardia, not good in kids, leading to hypotension. So treat the bradycardia with glycopyrrolate. I think that's going to be the answer.
0: And I like this question because there are a lot of distractors, like there's a lot going on. And if you just doubt yourself, it'd be easy to fudge this one, but you know, really, I I think that's a really common slip up in, in standardized tests is people get really caught up in what they don't know and they doubt what they do know. And so like the wrong answers really distract them. So again, like strip this down to like its basic question, bradycardia on induction of PEDS glyco. Yeah. Um, I'm actually just going to skip the next one because I think it's really complicated and the explanation is really complicated. And I don't – again, I took that one from a pediatric board review, and I think it's a little too much for this forum. So moving on to question five then. So a two-year-old male with a history of trisomy 21 is scheduled for an ophthalmic exam under anesthesia. With regard to planning airway management, which of the following statements regarding the airway management is true? And this is such a common advanced test question, like almost guaranteed test question. A, microglossia may make for a challenging direct laryngoscopy. B, hypertonia may be present causing upper airway obstruction. C, macronathia, macro, not micro, macronathia is a common finding. D, Airway manipulation may be limited due to potential for cervical spine instability.
1: Yeah. So what they've given you the opposite in A, B, and C. So it's right. macroglossia that they have, not microglossia. So the A's out. It's hypotonia, not hypertonia. So B's out. It's micrognathia, not macroglathia. So C's out. So they've just reversed A, B, and C to make those all wrong. And then yes. And I think what you were getting at, Jillian, is that these patients do have a, a potential for cervical spine instability. And so you want to be careful with it, uh, manipulating their airway.
0: Uh, So next one, question six, the incidence of each of the following is increased in patients with Down syndrome, which is trisomy 21, except A, malignant hyperthermia, B, congenital heart disease, C, smaller trachea, D, occipital atlanto-axial instability.
1: Yeah. So um, there again, this is one of the, all of the following, except, so you probably won't see those anymore, but a lot of older questions do have this. Just be careful if you're practicing with those the incident of each the incidence of each of the following is increased in all the following except so we're looking for one where it's not increased. So um, congenital heart disease is increased in patients with a trisomy twenty one. They do have a smaller trachea. They do have occipital atlantoaxial instability. So we're left with a malignant hyperthermia of which they are not more susceptible than the general population.
0: Which we talked about in the dystrophy section. Yep. All right, last question. And again, the, the questions 5, 6, and 7, in my opinion, if you're going to get a question about trisomy 21 kid, th- these are like the money questions. Uh, so the last one is anomalies and features associated with Down syndrome include A, smaller tracheas, B, occipital instability, C, the thyroid hypofunction, D, all of the above.
1: Yeah, and so the answer here is all of the above as we've discussed.
0: Yeah, and then again, for oral boards, there's just a lot that they can use from a stem with someone who's got like trisomy 21. You know, you could walk down a difficult airway. Uh, you could do a tonsillectomy and then a bleeding tonsil. Like there's a, a lot here with these um, keywords. So hopefully this was helpful.
1: Absolutely. The trip um, down
0: memory lane. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: definitely reaching back in the uh, armament armamentarium of residency for me um, and Mezgal. Um, All right. Jillian, do you have a (laughs) random recommendation for us?
0: This is, I was actually, I knew you were going to ask it and I'm chuckling because it is really random, but something that I thought a lot about, and this is an unpopular opinion, but my son had a soccer tournament in Orlando. It was a like an international invitational it was the first time we've actually played like on an international level. We played some teams from like Mexico and South America. It was really fun, but we I've never taken my kids to Disney world. So we decided we're like, we're going to Orlando. We've already paid for like the hotel. We're going to be there. We might as well extend the trip by a few days and like go to the parks I really don't like Disney World, (laughs) but I love the Universal Studios, especially the Harry Potter parts of them. Oh, my gosh. It's so well done. And I mean, it's really worth the money. But in my opinion, skip Disney, go to Orlando, go hang out in Hogsmeade and in Diagon Alley. (laughs)
1: Nice. That sounds awesome. We were supposed to go uh, in March uh, of 2020. Mm -hmm. So we did not. <laughs> and one and of these I have days. Have to say, we... I'm
0: kind of relieved. My kids didn't love Disney World either. I think it was like around spring break time and the parks, they were just uncomfortably crowded. It, it just wasn't even fun. I mean, everywhere you turned and looked, it was a person.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think uh it's supposed to be great. And um my kids did like Harry Potter. So one of these days we will we'll get there. Um, all right. I'm gonna recommend uh, a book that um I just read. It's called Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Um she's, I I've actually
0: She's one of my favorite authors. The Poison I just reread the Poisoner Bible. It's one of my favorite books of all times.
1: I actually have never read anything by her before this. And I really liked it. It was it was um really interestingly written and and powerful. I mean, it's really a commentary on um, you know, kind of um poverty in, in rural America and the the um opioid epidemic and really interesting, but, um, yeah, it's made me want to read more by her. So you would recommend, uh, another one, Jillian?
0: It's called the poisonwood Bible. I I have a hard copy. I'll, I'll bring it in for you to borrow it for me. I've read all of her books. I think she's a wonderful writer, but it is to me, her best work. It's the story it's set in the sixties. It's a white family whose dad is a minister. There's four daughters. Um, they decide to go be missionaries in the Congo. And so he takes his family to this like small village in the Congo to try to convert them to Christianity. And I think it just, it really deals with colonialism and ministries and Christianity. It just, it's so well done. It's so fascinating. And every chapter is told by like a different person and it keeps like circling around. There's just so many layers to the story. It's beautiful. Just really good writing.
1: Very cool. I'll definitely check it out. Well, Jillian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay jwolpaw on Twitter. And we're at Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash acrac. That's patreo ncom slash A-C-C-R-A-C where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash acrac. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today for the ACRAC Podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.